preparation and that leadership this morning in such a rich, rich hymn. Let's pray. God, this morning, um, before I, before we bring a couple things before you, first, Lord, we want to enjoy that you are so, so holy and so great, so mighty. The fact that you're mindful of us is just a wonder. Thank you for letting us sing true things about you. Back to you. You're such a good God. We enjoy you this morning. We give you these next few minutes as an offering. Lord, also in these next few minutes, I want to lift up another church and another pastor. I want to pray for Jimmy Vaughn this morning and for Authentic Life Fellowship. Lord, we are thankful for a shared ministry that we may meet in different buildings, but our Lord is the same. The spirit that we share is the same. The baptism we share is the same. And we cheer for your glory and your fame and your renown and your work in and through that church. Lord, whatever way that we should come alongside Authentic Life Fellowship, maybe if it's just, just lifting them up this morning, or if it's more official, or if it's somewhere in between where we give a word of encouragement at a workplace or a, a neighborhood to someone who worships there, who's part of that church, Lord, I pray that we'll be faithful to do so. Lord, also this morning, we want to remember those who have given their lives in the service of our country. Thinking about families that are dealing with a reminder of the loss today, Lord, we are thankful that we have many pictures of great love Enjoying the truth that greater love hath no man than this, and he laid down his life for his friends. We have many who have given their lives for us. We are thankful. We remember them today. We remember them this weekend. And, Lord, we lift those families up. Lord, I pray for this next season for this people. Think about what you've done to us and through us and on us in these last 12 and the books of John and Hebrews. I'm excited to wonder and imagine what's in store in this next season. We give this to you in Christ's name we pray. Amen. So we're not in Isaiah. All right. For those of you that I've gotten a lot of feedback from people like, man, Isaiah, whew, Hebrews, from Hebrews to Isaiah, is there any other option? Here's the plan. I still want to preach Isaiah. I feel like we need it. It's the most quoted prophetic book in the New Testament. Our New Testament writers, the Gospels, they quote Isaiah over and over and over again. And if they knew it like the back of their hands, then we need to know it. So here's my plan. We're going to move into what I would call a bread and butter book, a book that every church should eat and know and have worked through the book of Ephesians. That's where we're beginning this morning. And as we work through Ephesians, I'm dedicating Mondays to studying Isaiah and formulating a plan to move through Isaiah in pieces. I don't want us as a church to spend every single Sunday in Isaiah till the end of time. <laughs> so I want to formulate a plan where we, in, in something of a condensed um, treatment, can still deal with Isaiah and still eat it as our New Testament writers uh, ate it, um, but that we can do it in a way that's more digestible. Meanwhile, we have a bread and butter, meat and potatoes book like Ephesians that every church should know that we will primarily spend our time in. So we will likely tackle the first little piece of Isaiah, the first 12 chapters sometime this fall in a month or month and a half little series. So between now and then, will be in Ephesians. So you can go ahead and turn there. That's where we're going to be this morning. Now, this morning, I'm going to let you know, I'll give you a little heads up. I think I'm more teacher than preacher this morning. 
But whenever you're moving into a new book, you need to do some teaching. There will be some preaching. And I don't know where, there's not a real tidy line. The bottom line is you're exposing God's word. So that's what we're going to be doing this morning. Whatever hat I'm wearing and uh, whatever you're expecting, I want you to know that we're going to expose the first couple of verses in Ephesians this morning. But more than anything, we're going to sort of ease into it, climb into the context. Martin Luther's favorite book was the book of Romans. Uh, John Calvin's favorite book, on the other hand, was the book of Ephesians. John Calvin preached a series of 48 sermons from the book of Ephesians from 1558, May of 1558, to March of 1559. John Knox, one of the Scottish reformers, found the book of Ephesians and Calvin's sermons so important that on his deathbed, he had his wife read those sermons to him day after day, the few days before he went on to be with the Lord. Countless folks have been won to faith through the book of Ephesians over the years. Uh, One such person, though, was a man named John McKay. John McKay was the former president of Princeton Theological Seminary, and he said what happened to him as he read and studied the book. He said, I saw a new world. Everything was new. I had a new outlook, new experiences, new attitudes to other people. I loved God. Jesus Christ became the center of everything. I had been quickened. I was really alive. Hearing a report from a guy like like John McKay, I was quickened. I was really alive. I'm excited to anticipate what we'll say God did through whatever time that we will invest in the book of Ephesians. What I'm going to do this morning in some ways is going to be to developing to develop some context for you. Context is wildly important. Put this first picture I've asked you to put up, if you would, John Mark. I like the thought of being able to visualize a lesson. And this is a little lesson that is easy to, easy to visualize whatever age you might be. You might look at this picture and think that this picture is about two lovers gazing at one another that are looking longingly into each other's eyes, conspiring when they might be together next. You might look at this picture and say, certainly this is about a love story, but what you think you may be seeing may not be what you're supposed to see. Go ahead and turn to this next page. Our next slide. What you think you might be understanding about something, some context as you take a snapshot may be completely off. This isn't necessarily about faces. It may be about vases. Go ahead and hit that next slide. The work that we do in context and building context for a book or for a journey that we're going to make together in some ways is determining, are we talking about faces or are we talking about vases? We don't want to parachute into something and walk away with something that's not there at all. It may not be a love story. It may be about pottery. Okay, hit that next slide. This is just one more little example. I don't have a tremendous investment in this, the visual aids this morning, but this is one that I thought was interesting. In this case, if you read vertically, you're going to be reading numbers. If you read horizontally, you're going to be reading letters. And that B is made up of the same data that a 13 is made up of. And the work that we do in context in building context for a book, in some ways is going to determine for us, are we reading vertically? Are we reading horizontally? Because the difference can make a tremendous impact on how we interpret and then how we apply. Okay, y'all can kill those slides. Enough for my visual aids this morning. I want to give you one little example. It's not even in the book of Ephesians, but it's one example that I've considered over the years. It's just really easy to visualize. Romans 1.16 says this. It's one of the earliest... Uh, one of the first passages that I ever memorized. It goes like this, For I am not ashamed of the gospel, for it's the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes. That's likely a passage you've heard before. It may be a passage that you've heard in an evangelism, in an evangelist sermon. And it's a passage that I've heard over the years a number of times as people have dealt with difficult matters like predestination and election. Referring to a passage like this, For I'm not ashamed of the gospel, for it's the power of God to everyone who believes. What we're missing there is context. 
That passage continues, for I'm not ashamed of the gospel, for it's the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes, to the Jew first and also to the Greek. Context tells you everything. Are we talking about vases or are we talking about faces? Are we talking about individuals or are we talking about peoples? Most of our New Testaments is dealing with peoples and the reconciling work of the cross to bring together unlikely bedfellows like Jews and Gentiles. But we can tend to read like a bunch of individualistic Americans and see vases when we should be seeing faces or the other way around. It's a beautiful example that context matters. The book of Romans is largely about uniting Jew and Gentile. The book of Ephesians, you will find too, as we move into it, is about uniting the unlikely people of Jews and Gentiles. It's not about individual people's salvation, although we can glean some things from that. Context builds the lens for how you read the book. And it's why the first few sermons as we move into a book, the third time for me anyway in the life of this church, are about course charting. We're determining, are we reading this thing vertically or are we reading it horizontally? Are we talking about faces or are we talking about vases? So this morning, what we're going to do, I'll give you a plan for the morning. We're going to look at four things in these next few minutes. First of all, we're going to look at the author, the author of the book. Then we're going to look at the occasion for the letter. I should say the author of the letter and then the occasion for the letter. Third, we're going to look at the place. And fourth, we're going to look at the recipients. Okay, there's no dancing girls, no smoke, no smoke machines, no sparkly lights. We're just good bread and butter context building this morning. Okay, I'm going to be teaching and y'all need to be learning, attentive, maybe even taking notes. Okay, first of all, the author, the author of the book or the letter, Ephesians. This is a letter from a man named Paul. Paul is the same man that at one point was called Saul. He was converted through an experience on the Damascus Road. And by the time this letter is written, he has then made three missionary journeys throughout the Roman Empire starting churches. There's a passage in Romans chapter 15 that's a nice reference. A little, uh, if, if, if Paul had one passage that defined what his life was about, it would be this verse. This is our author. In Romans 15, 20, he says, I make it my ambition to preach the gospel not where Christ has already been named, lest I build, lest I build on someone else's foundation. Paul was about taking the church where the church wasn't. And he's made three, by the time he's written this letter, he's made three missionary journeys into the Roman Empire. And at this point, he spent about two and a half, of, or on two and a half journeys, He's made himself, he's made a trip to Ephesus, and I'll explain the half in a moment. Between his missionary journeys, Paul spent a total of about three total years with the Ephesian people. Something that's interesting about this letter, if you're thinking about some of Paul's other letters, it's completely void of a lot of the personal interaction that he has in some of his other letters, where he's naming people by name. Say, say hi to Bill. Say thanks to Susie. He's not doing any of that kind of stuff in this letter. And the reason being, people believe, is that this was what was called a circular letter that went to churches all over the, the Ephesus area, the region in Asia, and there would be people there that he didn't know, and he didn't want to put them off by being personal with other people that he did know. This letter likely went to people who were won by those he won. So in some ways, it might have been a second-generation type letter, or at least going to first- and second-generation believers. Paul is writing this letter to, we believe, from jail. He mentions that in the letter, so we don't have to be Inspector Clouseau to figure that out. We do have some, it, it, it's not absolutely clear which occasion of his imprisonment, but we believe it to be likely when he's imprisoned in Rome after he's made his missionary journeys in A.D. 62. Now, as to the occasion of the letter. Most of our letters, our epistles, they're called in our New Testaments, were written for a reason. They're called occasional letters. For those of us that have spent some time in the book of Hebrews, you know that that is an occasional 
letter. It was a sermon, but it was an occasional letter written to the Hebrews church who's on the bubble, remember? They're considering bailing on Christianity because it's hard and likely in their context in Rome, and they're considering going back to Judaism. So the book of Hebrews is written to deal with a problem. It's like medicine. The book of Ephesians, though, apparently is not dealing with any particular problem. Instead of medicine dealing reactively with a problem, it's food given to people that he loves. One of the things I enjoy about what we're going to spend over these next, over this next two however long we're going to be in Ephesians is that it's going to be a nice place for us to be. It's just good food for a healthy church. It's not dealing with any problem in particular. It's just good meat and potatoes, just good nourishment. Now, place. We're going to spend a little bit longer on place this morning. We need to climb into the context of where this letter was received what, Paul, what Paul's experience was there and what these people were like. Ephesus was the capital of a Roman province in Asia in what's now present-day Turkey. Ephesus was a commercial port that by Paul's time had almost completely silted in. Only the smaller ships by this point could get into the port. In fact, by Paul's final journey, the reason I said there were two and a half trips to Ephesus, the third time that he met with the Ephesian people, he met with the Ephesian elders at Miletus, likely because he couldn't get, he was on a ship that was too big to get into Ephesus. There are four things really going on in Ephesus that I want to talk about in these next few minutes. First of all, paganism. Second of all, commerce. Third, there's three things really, paganism, commerce, and magic. Okay, first let's talk paganism. This will come up a lot, I think, over the course of our time in Ephesians. The main structures in the city in Ephesus were two, in in addition to the docks or the port. And that would be the theater and the temple of Artemis. The theater, we'll consider here in a few minutes, the theater seated about 24,000 people and was where the silversmiths led by a guy named Demetrius protested against Paul's ministry. And I'll share a little excerpt from that story in a moment. The temple Artemis though, the temple was about the size of a football field and was made of marble. Just imagine, first of all, stepping into a structure that big that amazing, that impressive, made of marble. It likely had cedar beams on the top and cypress paneling from what early writings tell us. It was the largest building known to exist in antiquity and was considered to be one of the seven wonders of the world. This temple of Artemis was the centerpiece of life in Ephesus. For centuries, including Paul's time when he visited and the time of this letter, the life of Ephesus revolved around this temple and the worship of Artemis, also known as Diana. The worship of Artemis and Diana. I was trying to imagine what life would be like, what to compare this to, and I couldn't really think of anything. A couple of years ago, this is kind of close maybe, a couple of years ago, Christy and the kids and I had a chance to go to Rome And when you go to Rome, you've got to go see the Colosseum. But the Colosseum is not the only thing to see. I mean, you you turn to the right or the left, you see something else that's amazing that has some crazy ancient history to it. But just imagine Rome with just the Colosseum, where the life and the commerce and the activity all centered around the Colosseum. One of the days we were supposed to go to, when we were in Rome, we were supposed to go see the Leaning Tower of Pisa. And it was just a serious commitment, and we were seriously tired that day, so we ended up bailing on it. But I wish we had seen it. But what we heard from other people, which may have told, helped us realize that it wasn't necessarily essential, is that in Pisa, all there is is the tower. This leaning tower, you see it like, ah, oh, it's pretty amazing, and then you leave because there's nothing else to do in Pisa. To imagine a city or a town that's just centered around this one structure is to imagine... Ephesus, but what I was thinking about, what was really interesting, is I really considered Ephesus. In some ways, I wonder if Ephesus isn't Babel uninterrupted. If in some ways, Ephesus isn't Babel unscattered. 
You know the story in Genesis 11 where man, the people of Babel want to build this tower up to God and they want to make a name for themselves. It's really all about themselves and focusing on being great and considering this structure. And then God interrupts it and then he scatters the people over the face of the earth. In some ways, it's like in Ephesus, he didn't do that. He let them build their tower and he left it uninterrupted. And I suspect that this observation is going to come up later. It will come up later this morning, but I suspect it's also going to come up later as we make our journey through Ephesians. The worship of Artemis was so important in Ephesus that they considered this goddess, Diana or Artemis, to be the wife of Ephesus. Take this in for a minute. They considered her to be the wife of Ephesus, the protectress of Ephesus, and the nourisher of the city When you take in little data points like that and you build some context, then you realize Paul's teaching on marriage in the book of Ephesians, in the letter of Ephesians, takes on a whole new meaning. When you consider the recipients likely were indoctrinated in this mindset that Artemis is our bride, that he's not only introducing them to the realities of man and wife, but also the relationship between Christ and the church, Christ's bride beautiful context-building thoughts. Another interesting point is that Artemis was venerated for her supreme power over fate. If you've read the book of Ephesians, you know the first chapter is dedicated to showing God in control over all things, including salvation. Ironic that here they are, likely in a context where Artemis or Diana is supposedly in control and controls fate. Paul deals in chapter 1 with things like predestination, with things like God's supreme will, his sovereignty, and his providence. Context really brings some of these things out. Now, as far as commerce, Ephesus, in addition to being a port, was at the west end of what was called the Royal Road There would have been a lot of traffic in and out of Ephesus. Other places in the region were referenced relative Ephesus. In fact, they found some early road markers that would say things like, you may have seen some of those signs, this far from New York City or this far to Tokyo, some of these major locations. They were referenced Ephesus. Ephesus was a major hub. It was regarded as the first and greatest metropolis of Asia and had an estimated 200,000 to 250,000 people. And it ranked in size and importance only behind Rome and Athens. Now, where paganism and commerce intertwined, they're not separate matters in this context. I'm not sure they're separate matters in our context. But they're definitely not separate matters in this context. In this setting, following Christ might very well mean that you lost your job. It might very well mean that you can't find a job even if you've lost one. It might mean that you live in abject poverty, persecution, and possibly even imprisonment. I mentioned the story in Acts chapter 19. I would encourage you to spend some time in Acts chapter 19 over the next few weeks as we get familiar with the Ephesians context. But listen to this account in Acts chapter 19, verse 23. About that time there arose no little disturbance concerning the way. For a man named Demetrius, a silversmith who made silver shrines, little miniature versions of the temple of Artemis. You've been to Rome. You know the little miniature versions. Or if you can imagine, you've been to some city where there's some structure, little miniature versions of that structure. Well, he's selling silver versions of the shrine of Artemis. And it brought no little business to the craftsmen. This was a major, major boon for commerce. These he gathered together, this Demetrius, with the workmen in similar trades and said, Men, you know that from this business we have our wealth. And you see and hear that not only in Ephesus but in almost all of Asia, this Paul has persuaded and turned away a great many people. God was using Paul and the church in a wonderful way in this context. Saying that gods made with hands are not gods. 
And there is danger not only in this trade of ours, that this trade of ours may come into disrepute, but also that the temple of the great goddess Artemis may be counted as nothing and that she may be deposed from her magnificence, she whom all Asia and the world worship. When they heard this, they're enraged and they're crying out, great is Artemis of the Ephesians. So the city was filled with confusion and they rushed together to the theater that I mentioned just a moment ago that could see 24,000 people, dragging with them some of Paul's buddies. When Paul wished to go in among the crowd, the disciples would not let him in. And even some of the Asiarchs who were friends of his sent to him and were urging him not to venture into the theater. Now some cried out one thing, some another, for the assembly was in confusion, and most of them did not know what, why they'd even come together. Some of the crowd prompted Alexander, whom the Jews had put forward, and Alexander motioning with his hand, wanting to make a defense to the crowd. But when they recognized that he was a Jew, for about two hours, they cried out with one voice, Great is Artemis of the Ephesians a very difficult place to trust Christ and be part of the church. It would affect lots of stuff to include commerce. It was also a center of magic, apparently, this Ephesus. In that very same chapter on the page before in my Bible, beginning in verse 18, listen to just a couple of verses here. Many of those who were now believers came confessing and divulging their practices. And a number of those who had practiced magic arts brought their books together and burned them in the sight of all. And they counted the value of them and found it came to 50,000 pieces of silver. 50,000 pieces of silver equated to 50,000 days wage. That equates to 137 years worth of pay. I would say that Paul's ministry and the church's ministry in Ephesus was having a profound effect. Would you agree? But you could also know that magic must have really been a big deal in that context. It's recorded in this story and in Acts that Paul did many signs and wonders here. But, and you could imagine in a context where there's lots of magic going on that signs and wonders would be especially important. But it's interesting in the book of Ephesians, there's no mention of the sign gifts. There's no mention of anything sensational. There's no mention of anything that's like what you might expect. It's just theology. Remember, no dancing girls, no smoke machines. It's just theology, the church, and family, and marriage, and just run-of-the-mill kind of stuff that we're walking in. It seems that to Paul at the moment that that's the most important thing. Now, we're going to get into the text and just spend a couple minutes drawing out the recipients. Ephesians chapter 1, verses 1 and 2 says this, Paul, an apostle of Jesus Christ, by the will of God to the saints who are in Ephesus and are faithful in Christ Jesus, grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. The recipients in this story, in this um, letter, in this uh, thing that we're going to be considering over however many years, potentially, was written to the saints in Ephesus. Now, I want to spend just a few minutes talking about these saints. The saints in Ephesus were not the spiritually elite. The reference to the saints in Ephesus were not people that if they were drawn in a fresco, they had a little halo over their head. These saints are referenced to just regular, run-of-the-mill believers in Ephesus. This saints, this word, if we were to translate it directly, it means holy. You might say to the holy ones in Ephesus. This is referring to just regular old Christians in Ephesus. And they're called saints not because of their performance. Remember the passage that Samantha read earlier that we're saved by grace through faith, not by works or else you'd boast about it? They're saved not by their, they're not called saints because of their performance. They're called saints because of their position. And that's what this letter is going to be about over the course of the time that we spend together. We'll find that. These saints 
obtained this position because they appropriated Christ's work to their lives by faith rather than gaining it by acting saintly. Is that good news to anyone other than me? Man, I want to read a book that tells me that. Because if my salvation is dependent on me being saintly, I'm done. Anybody else? Man, I want to read a book that tells me how to appropriate Christ's work by faith so that I, too, can be considered holy and a saint. These saints also in this passage are referred to as the faithful in Christ Jesus. If I'm preaching, it's just these last few minutes and where I'm going in these next few minutes. Really important stuff right here. The saints in Ephesus who are faithful in Christ Jesus. This reference here, faithful in Christ Jesus, is not saying the faithful as in fidelity. Those who are really doing a good job in Christ Jesus. That's not what this means. The faithful in Christ Jesus is speaking more about the full of faith. The people that are full of faith and particularly full of belief in Christ Jesus. And interestingly enough, it's not even believing in Jesus. Those who are believing a lot in Jesus is not who he's referring to here. It's a very difficult translation, and our translations don't do a very good job of it. I didn't find one that did a really good job of it. But here's what this passage is saying. Paul is addressing believers who are in Christ Jesus. It may seem like a small thing, but it's not a small thing at all. Those who are in Christ Jesus. This is referring to those who are united to Christ by faith. And through the work of faith, through Christ's work, are become branches to the vine that is Jesus. Who are in Christ Jesus. In John chapter 15, Jesus is teaching about this. He says, I am the vine, you are the branches. Apart from me, you're going to do nothing. In me, you're going to bear much fruit. That's what this is referring to here. The believers who are in Christ Jesus. Belief in Christ means you, a saint, are placed in Christ. I want to say that again because I really want you to get this. I spent a lot of time trying to make sense of this. So I'm going to make sure you, you get it too. Belief in Christ means that you, a saint are placed in Christ Jesus as a branch is to a vine. He now is your source of nourishment. He now is your source of strength. He is your source of very life itself. And he's the means by which you bear fruit. This little phrase here, in Christ Jesus is connecting to one of the themes of the book of, or the letter, Ephesians. One of the themes on unity. There are two real central themes, and one is on unity and one is on love. And I'll deal with love here in these next few weeks, but I want to spend just a moment on unity. The Greek word for unity is used only here in Ephesians, right here. It's also the Greek word, or also the Greek word for one is used 14 times in this letter. One baptism, one new person, one body, one spirit, one faith. And then throughout this letter, you're going to see phrases like the one we're talking about right now. In Christ, in the Lord, you're going to see them 38 times in this letter to the Ephesian church. You're also going to see lots of phrases like, with, together with, things like this. God made us alive together with Christ and seated us in heavenly places. All of these withs, all of these togethers, all these unity words connect to another Greek word in this letter, the Greek word ekklesia, which means church. One of the treasures of this book is seeing these withs, together withs, these in Christ, and all of them connected to the church. The church is also described in this letter as a temple, as a bride, fittingly. As a body united under one head, Christ, and unity is a prominent theme 
in this letter to the church in Ephesus. Babel, unscattered. Babel, uninterrupted. Despite the fact that God let them build the seventh wonder of the world. Despite that they likely had a tremendous amount of pride in that structure. Despite the fact that the largely the entire community participated in some way, whether it's actual worship or whether it's commerce, despite all that, they would need to experience something altogether different to experience true unity. Build your Babel temple. Build your tower. Build your temple to Artemis. You will not experience true unity in that. But in Christ, you will. That's what this letter is about. It's about unity in Christ through one faith, one baptism, one Savior, Jesus Christ. Build your tower, but only the cross will achieve unity. Man, it's only going to be the saints who experience it. The last thing, well, there's two more things regarding the saints. This one's sort of a side note, but it's important. Because I I want you to be mindful of what we're doing over the the next couple of years or however long we're in Ephesians. This letter is to the saints. This letter's not to lost people. When I was in seminary, Christy and I had a conversation that recurred over and over again. This is before I'm pastoring, and I'm trying to make sense of what is Sunday morning? What are we doing when we gather together on Sunday morning? Are we winning the lost? Are we equipping the saints? Likely, if you're trying to do both, you're probably not going to do a good job of either. That's where we landed. And 12 years ago when we started this thing, we started off in the place that Ephesians will teach us later, that church and Sunday morning gatherings as we get together is for equipping the saints for the work of service. If you want to kind of put it in perspective, you're being equipped to win the lost. If all you ever do when you show up on Sunday mornings is hear yet another version of the gospel and an invitation to come and down to, to an altar that's not an altar at all, is, man, a bunch of saints are going to come and go ill-equipped and empty and hungry. I thought about this over and over again. It would be like being part of the Lions Club. Lions Club is great. My dad is in Lions Club. I sold, I bet, a gross of brooms with my dad over the years. And light bulbs. We sold light bulbs, too. Going door to door with Lions Club. I'm off of this. This is just an illustration. Imagine if you joined the Lions Club in November during a membership drive. And then come December, the president of the Lions Club says, hey, our membership drive went so well. I think what we're going to do is we're going to extend, extend this into December, and we're just going to continue to try and get some more members. You're like, ah, okay, that's cool. You could probably survive that maybe even for a couple more months if things are really going well. And he says, let's extend this on into January and February. Eventually, before long, you're going to look at everybody else in the Lions Club and go, don't we do anything? Are we just about getting new members? Man, the church can be like a bricked-over revival tent just trying to get people saved every single week. I'm all for getting people saved, but, man, I want to equip the saints for the work of service because you might be better at it than I am. I'm not an evangelist. I'm a pastor teacher, and I want to be about equipping the saints for the work of service. This letter is to saved people. Now, the beauty is you can come to faith through Christ from hearing the preaching of the word through the book of Ephesians. You're going to hear all about Jesus. If some of you are like, man, I'm trying to figure out what this Christianity thing is, stick around. You're going to hear it, especially in chapter 2, verses 1 through 10. You're going to see the gospel exposed. But here, even in the first two, two verses, Paul, an apostle of Christ Jesus, to the faithful in Ephesus, in Christ Jesus, grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. Is that a hint this, this letter is about Jesus? Oh, man, it's super saturated. It's the air of the letter. But know that at least from the point of perspective of who this is written to, this is written to the saints, to saved folk, to equip you for the work of service. And that's how we're going to treat it. And lastly, regarding the saints, and then we're going to move in our supper. Well, I want you to hear this. The saints have two homes according to these first two verses. 
See, it tells us here the believers who are in Christ, the residents who are in Ephesus. What I want you to appreciate from these, just to these, these two verses that you're going to see exposed over the course of the letter is they're equipping us to be citizens of two kingdoms. This letter is written to those who live in Ephesus who are also in Christ. They're straddling two kingdoms. And that's not just them, that's you too. You're straddling two kingdoms. If you are in Christ, you may also be in Caddo or in Roy City, in Rockwall, in Greenville, in Lone Oak. Know that you ideally are being equipped or will be equipped to straddle both worlds. When you forget one and lean more toward the other, man, things get all messed up. When you think that you're just in Christ and forget that you're in Caddo or in Greenville or in Roy City or in Rockwall, then you're likely going to hunker down and not be salty, bright, and aromatic, and you're not going to engage anybody that doesn't know Christ. You're not going to be a sweet aroma in a hard place. And then on the other hand, if you forget that you're in Christ and you just think you're in Caddo, then you're certainly not going to be that either. You're just going to be worldly. So, man, things go all kind of awry when you forget you're straddling two worlds at the same time. It's simultaneous citizenship is what this letter is going to equip us for. Now, lastly, we're going to move into our supper. And beautifully, our supper, or at least what we're going to consider in these next few minutes, comes from this passage. Verse 2, it says, Grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. What blossoms later in the letter is here in the first couple of verses in bud. And here beautifully, grace to you and peace, it might just sound just sort of like kind of a a greeting, a simple greeting, is really the gospel in bud. What we're going to find exposed later in this letter. See, there was a Jewish greeting that went mercy and grace to, excuse me, mercy and peace to you. And Paul never used that in every single one of his letters. He uses instead grace and peace in every single one of them. They're more than a greeting. First of all, they're, they're a glimpse into what he's going to be teaching in the rest of the book. But grace, let me just spend a moment on grace and peace and then we'll distribute the elements. Grace is God's unmerited and undeserved favor in providing salvation for sinners through Christ's sacrificial death. That's what grace is. People misuse, abuse grace to be the very thing that's supposed to cover your unrepentant sin or cover the unrepentant sin of some seeker. That's not grace. Grace is the unmerited or undeserved favor in providing salvation for sinners through Christ's sacrificial death. Grace is him making a way. Grace is not you thumbing your nose at the way. Grace is him making a way. And here where he's saying grace to you means that he's wishing these people from the outset of the letter and maybe through the content of the letter that the Ephesians will appreciate it, that they will accept that grace, that they will appropriate God's undeserved favor. That's what he's wishing here at the beginning of the book. And when he refers to peace, he's not talking about serenity. When Paul talks about peace, he's not talking about what you might experience on a nice breezy day at Savannah Meadows. That was just a conversation that Christy and I were having recently about Savannah Meadows. She went out the other night. I'm not picking on Savannah Meadows. I've spent a night in a treehouse out at Savannah Meadows. It's kind of cool. But know that when Paul's talking about peace, he's not talking about serenity. When Paul talks about peace, he's talking about one thing. He's talking about a relationship that is reconciled between creator and creature and then creature and creature. He's talking about the peace that was won and earned through the cross. Peace between sinners and their God and believers' peace with one another. That's what Paul's talking about here in this letter. So taken together, grace and peace... Oh, man. Grace expresses the cause of God's work. 
And peace expresses the effect of God's work. Grace expresses the cause of God's work. And peace expresses the effect of God's work. The grace of God that brings salvation to sinners affects peace between them and God. And the same, very same grace enables believers to live peaceably with one another. Man, we have some treasures in store in this book. We, we are reminded of this, this grace and this peace that was extended and won and earned through the cross every single week when we take the supper. That's why we take it every single week. Why would we not want to be reminded of that? I need to be reminded of that this morning. The vertical peace between God and man and the horizontal peace between man and man, man and woman, Jew and Gentile, that's what this letter will be about. That's what our supper will be about these next few minutes. Let's go ahead and distribute the elements. Every time we have this supper, we remember that grace has been extended to us. God's free, saving grace of undeserved mercy. Every time we have this supper, we remember that through the cross, peace was earned. He's reconciled sinners to himself and to each other in this community called the church. So church and faith, let's together take and eat. Let's together take and drink. In a moment here, we're going to continue in song, and we're going to have an offering. We have a little um, bag there that's not trash for the supper. All right, it's not, that's an honest mistake that anybody could make, but it's not. Hold on to your trash and drop that in the back. It's, it's for an offering. So, um, But let me say this. I, man, I... What I mean is, when I read God's word, I want to walk away with something to do. And as important that is, as that is, sometimes we can make an idol. It's potential to make an idol of that. I want you to think about it like this. If you were to go, men, let me be very specific. Men, if you were to go on a date with your wife and to just spend some awesome time with your wife, you may or may not, you probably won't come home with a to-do list of things that you now then need to go do. You're just going to have enjoyed spending time with her. And there are more often than not times where we come for corporate worship where we leave with nothing more than I enjoyed God this morning. I don't have a to-do list. But if you're an application junkie, let me give you a couple of applications. (laughs) Here's the first one. Read your Bible. It's cutting-edge stuff. I mean, it really... You know, tip of the spear, you know, innovation is all, I mean, that's what I'm about, you know, just new things. Read your Bible. You're going to read the book of Ephesians or the letter to the church in Ephesus differently now, having spent the time we spent investing in context than you would if, if we hadn't done this together. You'll read with a new set of eyes. Look for themes. Look for repeated phrases. And you'll enjoy. Your heart will sing when you find those things because he showed them to you. And then, too, you'll be better prepared next week. You won't be as sleepy. I promise. Listen, I don't know why it is, but men are usually sleepier than ladies. And I don't know why it is. Is Life is harder for a man or something? I don't think so. I mean, I, just know that I can see when you're sleeping. You're not invisible. You're not like that guy picking his nose in the car that doesn't think anybody can see him. I see you. <laughs> if you're sleepy on Sunday morning gatherings during the preaching and exposition of the word, here's two thoughts. When I was in the Marine Corps going through initial training and we were sleepy, we got out very little sleep, we stood up at the back. Because if we missed it, it might cost the lives of some young Marines. There was a lot at stake. Think about this, men, sleepyheads. If you're sleepy on Sunday mornings and you actually get up, you think your kids can't see you sleeping? 
If you actually get up and stand at the back, what do you think your kids are going to think of you and what you're hearing? They're going to say, that matters enough for my dad to humble himself and stand up to make sure that he's getting the goods. So that's one measure. And another measure is actually prepare for Sunday mornings. It's a crazy notion. You know where I'm going. <laughs> it's going to be the next few verses or maybe the next verse or the next phrase or maybe the next word. I've been, I had a sermon on a word before. <laughs> Study that next phrase. It's going to make you so alert the next morning because you've invested in it and God has invested in you as you've read. This is not like rampant epidemic sleeping going on. All right, let me set you all of these. There, there, but there's always some. And, I just, and I've been sleepy before, so I have grace and mercy. More mercy than grace. Here's the second application point. Read your Bibles. <laughs> Having your minds regularly, arguably daily exposed to God's Word will give you a perspective on life, spiritual health, nothing else can provide. I don't know what else does it. Man, I'm just going to be really honest with you. After finishing up Hebrews, I don't know if I was just personally cashed. I don't know, but I went into a really dark period. And I'm not sure I'm completely out of it, but I was in a really, really dark place. And I was in such a dark place, I didn't even want to read my Bible. I, you notice I wasn't preaching. That wasn't reactive. It wasn't because I was in the ditch, although God was protecting you from me because I wasn't ready to stand and deliver. But interestingly enough, when I was able to climb back into God's word, my attitude and my disposition is changing, and my perspective on life is changing, and I'm coming out of a little dark night of the soul. If you find yourself in a dark night of the soul and you're not reading God's word, get comfy, because you're going to stay there. If you're reading God's word and you're in a dark night of the soul, keep reading. I promise you he's going to bring you out of that. So if you're an application junkie, read your Bible. And here's the last thing. Pray for more worship and less consumerism. We need that, all of us. More just enjoying God and less what is he going to do for me. I think this book is going to give us a nice dose of that. Let's continue on in song, offering, and worship. Christ's name.